Well, I've said it before and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, we are here at the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California, for the 2021 Reagan National Defense Forum. The Reagan National Defense Forum, also known as RNDF, brings together leaders and key stakeholders from across the political spectrum. The Reagan National Defense Forum offers the defense community a chance to discuss how the United States can lead the world in an era of increasingly complex challenges and opportunities. In the first of our three-episode series on RNDF, Roger sits down with the founder of defense startup Anderil Industries and founder and designer of Oculus VR, Palmer Lockheed. Palmer and Roger discuss virtual reality, defense technologies, and the technological battle between the United States, China, and Russia. For more RNDF-related content, including our panel with Secretary of Defense Lloyd J. Austin, or to watch episodes of Reaganism, visit youtube.com slash Reagan Foundation. Welcome, everybody. I'm excited to have this Reaganism podcast from Simi Valley, California, at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. I'm sitting here in our Oval Office in the Discovery Center, where young people have a chance to experience what was it like to be in President Reagan's Oval Office we're going to have a special episode today where we talk about the upcoming Reagan National Defense Forum. That's why we're here in Simi Valley. It is a major convening of leaders from across the national defense community. We have senior officials from the Pentagon, including the Secretary of Defense, scores of members of Congress, leaders from industry and technology space, and of course, thought leaders. They'll all be here for the Reagan National Defense Forum. And we're going to try to give you a, a feel for what we're going to discuss, uh, the major issues facing our national security and defense community. And one of the ways we're going to start is with a unique voice from the defense community, the broader national security innovation community, and that is Palmer Lucky. Palmer, welcome to Reaganism. Horace, I'm glad to be here. So, Palmer, you are the founder of Oculus Virtual Reality, which was acquired by Facebook, or I guess now they're calling Meta. And more recently, Andrew Industries. We'll get into all of that. Uh, what's so cool about your story is that this first company that you founded, Oculus Virtual Reality, uh, was something that you did at your parents' garage. That's something that more and more people know about uh, when they look you up and try to understand what you're doing. Just give us a sketch. How'd you get into technology? Well, I grew up pretty interested in technology, mostly as a technology user. Um, and it, I, I, I guess I started taking things apart, putting them back together, trying to learn what I could, became a bit of a self-taught electrical engineer, uh, got really interested in building uh, cool science projects, all kinds of, of cool weapon systems. Uh, I, got into, I got into solid state and gas lasers when I was 12 or 13, and that was really sounds, cool. That sounds a little dangerous. Were your parents concerned? You know, I think my parents didn't fully understand the danger of gas laser <laughs> systems. Um, In your garage. Uh, yeah, you know, and, and, and you know, I, I think that I was lucky to have parents that were uh, they, they were generally willing to let me do what I wanted to do as long as I was doing well academically. I was actually homeschooled, so as long as I kept my my test scores reasonably good, uh, they were they were they were down to let me do what I thought was interesting. But yeah, that, that was how I got interested in technology. Remind me where mm -hmm. home is. Where, where? Uh, Long Beach, California, close to the port of Long Beach. Got it. And, and of course, this interest and in tinkering uh, led you to the world of virtual reality. Um, how did you land there and, and, and come to found Oculus? 
So I was a, I was a, a gamer. I played a lot of video games, wasted a lot of time playing video games, but um, I was also interested not just in playing video games, but also building the best possible uh, set of hardware to build, to play PC games on. And as people in the community would call it your rig. And uh, I had a really expensive rig that I had built. I had at one point an eight monitor set up all tiled together uh, using AMD's new Ifinity support and their newest graphics cards. And I, I thought to myself, okay, this is really cool, but what's the next step? Like, where do I go from here? I mean, the, the future of gaming is not going to be 10 monitors or 30 monitors. It's not going to be, you know, eight graphics cards instead of three. It's going to be, it's going to be something different. And uh, clearly the answer, if you look to science fiction, which I was a huge science fiction buff, was virtual reality. This idea that you can put something on your face that tricks your body into believing you're actually present inside a virtual environment. And I knew that VR technology was pretty crude at the time. Uh, there have been big failures in the, in the 90s and in the early 2000s. There wasn't really anybody working on it. But it was clear that if I was going to work on something, this wasn't just the next step. It was the last step. Like this was this was in the long run, all gaming was eventually going to become virtual reality gaming. It was just a matter of time and quality. So I got into it as a hobby. And uh, after a few years, I figured out how to make virtual reality headsets that were way cheaper, way better than anyone else was doing. And I figured out how to do it for a few hundred dollars rather than a few hundred thousand dollars, like a lot of the existing equipment. And that was that was why I dropped out of college and started Oculus. So we're going to we'll get back to that, this theme of you figuring out how to do something for a few hundred dollars instead of thousands of dollars. Uh, I think you took that from Oculus to what you're doing now at, at Anderil. Uh, but of course, this is a story you're describing in the years between 2005 and 2010. Here we are in 2021. The company that you sold Oculus to now very recently seems to have embraced that company and is going to be defined by what you sold to Facebook. Not your words. That's my assessment of what's going on. Facebook, of course, is now meta and they're double downing, triple downing on virtual reality. Give me your take on that. And more broadly, now we're in 2021, knocking on the door of 2022. Do you feel good about the pace of innovation in the virtual reality world? Uh, is it doing what you expected to do more or less? So things are going really well. Um, I think things are moving. <clears throat> Everyone always says this, but they're moving at about the pace I expected. I mean, hmm. uh, you know, we Facebook paid a lot of money for Oculus, a few billion dollars, all the way back then, because they saw that our technology was the key to unlocking this idea of the metaverse, a parallel digital universe that exists alongside our own, where we can you know, do anything, whether it's work or play or whatever. I mean, the slogan of Oculus was see you in the metaverse. I can't tell you how many books and VR headsets I've signed with that phrase. And so in a way, uh, Oculus kind of took over took over Facebook uh, in the in, in the current <laughs> meta rebranding. That's been really gratifying to see. I mean, the, the worst yeah. case for me as a VR enthusiast would be that VR uh, was a dead end that wasn't going anywhere. So this is this I you know, I, I'm enraged every day by the fact that I was fired from my own company. But I'm very happy that VR is doing really well. Yeah, that's got to be hugely gratifying. The company that bought your company that you found in the garage now has essentially braced it and, and taken on the name uh, that you gave it so many years ago. So you're, you're fully behind and enthusiastic about the metaverse. Oh, yeah. Uh, all right. Well, you left the metaverse as, a, as it were, or perhaps working on it full time in a company like Oculus, and you transitioned to the world of national security, national defense, uh, by founding Anduril Industries. I'm going to be honest with you, when you first came to the Reagan National Defense Forum in, in I guess it was 2018 or so, 
we always have CEOs and industry leaders and innovation leaders come to the forum. Palmer, you didn't look like the normal CEO. How did it feel, both at the Reagan National Defense Forum, but more broadly, uh, with your Tony Stark beard and your, uh, uh, let's say, Hawaiian shirts, coming into the world of buttoned-up aerospace and defense industries? Uh, was that all by design? And, and, and a few years later, uh, is it still something people kind of raise eyebrows, or they're expecting this? Um, you know, I, th I think there's there's two sides of that. One is the you know the, the, the kind of buttoned up nature of the defense industry in terms of people being you know it's it's very corporate, it's very uh, very traditional. It, it has been a bit stagnant for the last few decades. Um, and then there's a separate issue of of the clothing because I know some people who are way crazier than me, really off the wall people <laughs> who dress a lot more normal. In my case, uh, you know, I, I grew up wearing my dad's hand me down Hawaiian shirts. And then I made enough money that I can do what I want, and nobody can really tell me what to do. And so it's one of my few, few, my, one of my few things that I will just keep doing until there's a good reason. I, I'll, I'll wear a suit to the White House, uh, to Capitol Hill, and to weddings. And so you know, so there's there, there, there's places that get me in a suit, uh, but not well, many. That's good. The, the the big three: White House, yeah. Capitol Hill, and and to weddings. So that's to say, you wore a suit to your own wedding. I did. I did. I wore a, I wore a cream, a cream suit. Uh, it was, it was, it was, so I, I guess I had to stick out a little there, but I think that you know, the others, the, the, the more, the more shock, the bigger shock to me was not the clothing. It was more the way the industry worked. You know, coming from the technology industry where everything is very fast paced, where everything is very merit based, you know, you, you swim or sink based on how well you do and how fast you do it. Uh, it was very, very different coming in the defense space where, I, I mean, I would lay out how it is, but it's basically the opposite of the tech industry in every possible way. And adapting to that has been uh, a big shock. Well, that's interesting you looked at adapting, because in some ways people will look to you, not you know, the clothing are more of a metaphor uh, than anything else, uh, disrupting. When you came in uh, and founded Anderol, was it from the mindset of, I want to disrupt this sector in the way that perhaps other technologists do in other sectors? Or was there more of a kind of ideological or kind of patriotic sense that, hey, I want to enter this space because we have something to offer that currently, in your assessment, wasn't available to the world of our military and our national defense community? So I think it was all of those things. I mean, I, I, the, the kind of thesis of Anderil is, the big defense primes, Lockheed, Raytheon, Boeing, they're really good at building some things. There's other things they are clearly not the best in the industry to build. They're not experts. Uh, they, they don't compare them with the big tech companies. They don't have the best experts in artificial intelligence, networking, immersive displays, sensor fusion, uh, computer vision in general. Uh, those people are all mostly at these big tech companies. And then the big tech companies refuse to do work with the United States Department of Defense more and more, largely because of uh, their desire to maintain access to the Chinese marketplaces, and then also because they're afraid of the political blowback from their very ideological employees. And so you have this kind of very unique situation in US history where all of the companies that 
do work with the DoD are incapable of building things that can go toe to toe with our adversaries. And all of the companies that are capable of building these technologies, the most advanced technology companies in the United States refuse to do work with DoD. There's never been a point in US history where that's been the case ever. Well, and, and, and normally was, in a situation, sorry, was that? Yeah, I was gonna say that when you came to the defense form in 2018, you, you, you hit this point hard, right? Oh, I did. And, and, and talked about the issues of workforce, tech workforce not not being willing to support U.S. government, the national security community, specifically the Pentagon, and then the China uh, considerations of a lot of tech companies. That's changed quite a bit. A lot of our tech companies, either by their own will or because of <laughs> and China, have left the, chi the, you know, the, the China marketplace. Well, there's um, a couple reasons for that. I mean, yeah, and, you, and talk you, about the workforce, too, because you're recruiting that same workforce to support Android technologies. Sure. I mean, the, the interesting thing about that workforce is a lot of these people are in, I would say most people in big tech actually do support the military. It's a very small minority that's very loud, that is anti-DOD, anti-military. The leadership of big tech uses those people as useful idiots, as kind of an excuse for why they refuse to work with DOD. They say, oh, we're just listening to our employees. And they never mention the fact that they really want to maintain access to the Chinese markets, that they want to make sure that they don't do anything that's going to get them locked out of China. Because China is very aggressive about locking out companies that do any work that they don't like, whether it's saying the word Taiwan uh, or you know showing the Chinese government in anything but a very flattering light. Uh, you know, th these are things that do get you locked out of the Chinese marketplaces. And so normally you would see startups uh, kind of you know jumping up into existence. And uh, you know, when you have a market distortion, new companies usually sure. fill that gap. The problem is that in 35 years, there's only two companies that have become worth over a billion dollars in the defense space. And both of them were founded by billionaires, Palantir, SpaceX. Actually, Oculus is, or sorry, Anderol is now the third one. And you know, I, that was me coming off of my Oculus experience. And so unfortunately, we've built a country where the only way to succeed as a new defense company is to already have made billions of dollars somewhere else. And so that's the right, weirdest thing about the workforce. My goal was to build a company where I could get those people from those tech companies and bring them to work in a place where they could be proud to work on national security problems and know that we're not going to back down just because we want to make money in China. Yeah, so I want to talk about the actual technologies Andrew is working on. It's fascinating, interesting, and, and seeing where you've had success. And congrats on, on the success of Andrew. What you just said is that Andrew is now that third company that's kind of reached that billion-dollar level um, after Palantir and, and SpaceX. But explain to our viewers and listeners why capital has sat on the sidelines. Why is it that the startup culture that normally would have seen the venture community support them to disrupt other sectors wasn't finding that support in the aerospace and defense community and why it necessitated, necessitated someone like you or Peter Thiel and other, sec, uh, in, in other cases to back them. So I think the biggest reason is really financial. I, a lot of this is you know, people like to blame it on culture wars. They blame it on the venture capital community, not supporting duty. Again, just like the tech community, most of the venture capital community very much supports the idea that the United States should have the strongest military in the world and that we should help equip our allies around the world with the tools they need to deter aggression. That's actually not very controversial. The problem is dollars and cents. The United States government has made it almost impossible 
to break into the defense industry as a new player and do any significant scale. Usually if you invent something new as a new player, what happens is you invent it, you prototype it, you get a little bit of money from the government. And then in the end, they give the contract to one of the big guys to just knock off what you've made. And this happens over and over again. That's why there's no examples of success. So if I'm an investor, I say, well, wait a second. If there's only three examples of success and they're all backed by billionaires, why would I invest in companies? I mean, just historically, they don't succeed. So smart investors don't want to invest in the defense base. Smart founders don't want to start companies in the defense base. And smart employees don't want to work at startups in the defense space because they all see this pattern of failure over the decades and decades that people have been trying. And when I say 35 years, I don't pick that arbitrarily. That's basically more or less since the end of the Cold War. Uh, during the Cold War, we did a good job of rising, raising up new companies that were doing things better, faster, stronger, and turning them into powerhouses. After the Cold War, we've been just resting on our laurels and really letting the same big titans dominate. Well, and, and, and a related story, right? We're spending less on defense after the Cold War. The famous peace dividend yep. was taken and you saw a consolidation. You just outlined three smart, uh, three things smart people would not do, right? They would, or explaining why they wouldn't enter uh, the aerospace and defense sector. You're a smart yep. guy, you've been successful, and that's precisely what you've done. So why is it smart for you to do it with Andrew? Oh, it isn't. It was a terrible decision <laughs> from a risk calculus perspective. I did it because I cared about my country. And th th like this, th this is good and it's a problem. Uh, it's it's good in that I started this company because I thought that America needed a company that was going to go all in on applying artificial intelligence to building autonomous hardware. Um, and I didn't feel like the existing guys were going to do it. I knew big tech wasn't going to save us. The, the first page of our first pitch deck what said, Andrel is going to save taxpayers hundreds of billions of dollars a year by making tens of billions of dollars a year. And you know, that, that, was, that was a strong part of our mission is not just to build better technology, but to help reduce spending on wasteful legacy programs. Um, but the thing is, I can make a lot more money doing something else. I know that sounds arrogant, but you're just going to have to deal with it when you're talking to me sometimes. <laughs> I could have made a lot more money and had a lot more fun working in the video game space, continuing to, maybe I could have started another VR company. I could have worked in the automotive space. I truly believe that I could have made more money faster and had more fun doing it and all these things. I ended up in defense because it is a serious problem and there's not that many people who are able to do it. Put another way. I looked at the fact that two, the only other two successful defense startups in the last 30 years are founded by billionaires, and I felt a little bit of guilt and responsibility. I said, geez, yeah, how many how many ex-unicorn ex billionaire founders are there? Uh, you know, if I don't do it, who is? Well, well, tell us about what you're doing, because you, you've obviously at cost to you, right, not uh, going for the most profitable route, but actually doing something you felt was needed to be done from a patriotic sense of duty. How is it going? Right? You've obviously had success at Anderil, the valuation has gone up. What are you delivering? What are you providing in this uh, nexus between artificial intelligence and hardware for the military? What are they getting out of it? What are they seeing that those who are more entrenched in the aerospace and defense community aren't delivering? We are a hardware and a software company because we don't build, we don't do, we don't think of ourselves as a defense contractor. We think of ourselves as a defense product company. We build fully integrated products. We design them using our own money and then we sell them to the DOD and our allies as off the shelf complete products. That means taxpayers are not taking on the development risk for our programs. Uh, we don't get paid when things don't work. We don't get paid when things get delayed. We don't get paid when our things fail to perform as they should. For us, we're taking on all of that risk using our own money, which is actually the model I'd like to see more of in DoD. I think having skin in the game is good. Fear is good. 
I should be terrified of failing. I should be terrified of failure. I should be terrified that someone else is going to do better than me and that my company is going to die if I fail to perform because that's what motivates you to really compete and to fight and to win. So that, that, that's, that's kind of the foundation of the company. What we build, uh, we build a lot of different stuff, but kind of our core product is something called Lattice, which is an artificial intelligence sensor fusion system that can integrate with hundreds or even thousands of sensors and devices. So existing devices that the DoD already has, like air defense radars, manned fighter jets, destroyers, hypervelocity gun systems. Those are all things that we've integrated with our through our work with the Marine Corps and the Air Force and the Army and a bunch of a bunch of our, our allied partners, including the UK Ministry of Defense. Uh, we also build a lot of our own hardware. So we build drones, we build sensor towers that are defending military bases and border, border sites all over the United States and also abroad. Uh, we build counter drone systems that can jam drones and blow them out of the sky when they try to attack, uh, when they try to attack Americans and our allies. Um, and all these things are tied together again by our core product, which is kind of this AI AI core that is able to in, understand in real time what's happening on the battlefield and what the best way to respond to particular threats is. So, this, this, and you're referring to Lattice right now in that in that summary. Who are you displacing with this? Is this something that the military has another vendor that can provide, or are you coming and saying, "Hey, we have a product we built for you. You didn't even pay for it." but actually it's gonna allow you to integrate and utilize your capabilities, your platforms more effectively and efficiently through this AI system. There are parts of what we do that other people are trying to do. Nobody is trying to do the entire thing. They're not trying to make a thing that is the fusion engine, user interface, and network transport layer for every single asset the DoD has. That's my goal here. It's not just to integrate my hardware. I want to be the thing that ties together every asset they have, whether it's made by me or somebody else, into a single comprehensive picture where all the machines and all the, and all the people have the right information at the right time. Nobody's doing that. That's really why I started the company. If someone else was doing what we were doing, I would probably go and retire and play VR games all day. Does the military... Does the Pentagon understand that they need this? Do they know they need this? How much of your time for you and your colleagues is like trying to explain this concept and, and how it'd be used? Or do they immediately know, hey, wow, I've been looking for this. Thank you. W what's your experience been? You know, I think when we started the company, you know, almost five years ago, it was a little it was a little bit different. Um, I think we had a harder time explaining things to people. AI was not the, the I'm sorry. AI was not the hot buzzword that it is today. Um, and I think that it being so hot has led to a lot of people going out of their way to become educated, even on their own time. So not by us, but on their own time. I don't really have to explain to people why this is important anymore. They all understand what we're doing. They understand it's important. We've been doing a lot of work on, I guess, the, the latest buzzword they use is joint all domain command and control. We've gotten some really big contracts with DoD, including with the U.S. Air Force on the advanced battle management system. We've integrated our system as part of live fire exercises where we were uh, tying together naval assets, air assets, ground assets, shooting cruise missiles out of the air with real gun systems on the ground, all command and control through a virtual reality interface uh, plugged into Lattice. And so they, they, I think they, they really do understand this is one of their top priorities is deploying this type of technology into the broader force. So here you are, you got this company, you've got the DOD focused on it, they know they need this. Um, you've developed this on your own, haven't taken DOD taxpayer dollars. Now you're going out to colleges, universities across the country. Yep. And these young technologists are getting recruited from our biggest tech companies, trillion dollar market cap companies, to 
exciting startups in other sectors. When you tell them you're dealing with joint all domain awareness and all these different, you know, military terms, is that something that's working, that's turning them on, or is it something that takes a little bit more effort to recruit them to join you? So I'd say that there's the interesting thing about defense work is, especially with university age people, it's very polarizing. To some people, it's an irresistible magnet. They say, these problems are incredible. I could never get to work on these at any other tech company. I would never get to work in this way at any traditional defense prime. And so if they are at all interested in this type of stuff, they are drawn to us like, like, a, like a magnet. Um, there's other people where they're not convinced and they're not, they, you know, they, they're, they're, they're not really passionate. We spend a little bit of time trying to trying to work on those people and say, hey, here's why this is an important mission. Here's why you shouldn't go to Google where you'll work on nothing that matters. Here's why you shouldn't go to Facebook and work on things that don't matter as much. Um, but for the most part, we focus on the people who already agree that national security is important. We don't have to convince everybody. We just have to convince enough really good people that we can run a great company. And, and that hasn't been good? a problem. Are there, oh, there hasn't been a problem. So there are enough of those people out there as you, because uh, I know we've spoken about this before, you go to campuses, you still speak directly with you, the founder, uh, when they're considering an offer manual. So you think there's enough out there in the campuses and universities you visit? Yeah, I put a lot of my own resources into this and time into recruiting because it's really important to get the right people. And uh, yeah, there's definitely there's definitely enough people. You know, sometimes we get protesters. Sometimes we get people who don't really know exactly what we're doing and they just want to hear more. But there's a lot of people who are very excited about what we're doing. They really want to work on national security problems and they know they don't want to do it at an old stodgy defense company where they'll only get to work on one thing for five years and they don't want to go work at a big tech company where they're going to work on optimizing ads and search engines. So in the DC policy community, you get a lot of talking heads saying, okay, the biggest problem we're facing is we can't find enough software engineers or the smart type of people that you need for a company like Android. And others will say, no, the biggest problem is the defense bureaucracy, a mindset of just simply acquiring products from the same uh, vendors and the same approach is a bigger problem, right? We're, we're going to go ahead and not buy products. We're simply going to pay for your R&D and want ownership and yep. not allow the type of business arrangements that have made the free market in the U.S. so successful. For you, Palmer Lucky, what is the biggest challenge now going forward? Is it that DOD mindset and culture in terms of how it buys products and allows new entrants? Or is it kind of the Silicon Valley mindset as it relates to Nash security uh, work? I don't think it's the Silicon Valley mindset. That's not really an obstacle for us at this point. I mean, we, we, we get the people we need, we get the people we want. Uh, there's a lot of people who want to work here and you know, we, we really don't even have enough room for all the people that do want to work here. So we're in a good place there. The problem with bureaucracy is that the number one job of a government bureaucrat, generally speaking, you know, there's, there's exceptions, but generally speaking, the number one goal is to not get fired. And so you can expect them to do whatever it is that won't get them fired. And nobody ever got fired for giving a contract to Boeing or Raytheon. You know, even, even if it fails, even if it goes poorly, it's easy to say, well, they're one of the big guys. You know, they have a, a long track record. And so um, that's a, that, that's been a challenge, a challenge for us because people can get fired for betting big on a new startup if they end up failing to deliver. We would say, what the heck were you thinking? Why was, why was this a good idea? And so uh, we're, we're kind of in this interesting space where 
we, we have to prove that we are a reliable partner. We have to prove that we can manufacture at scale. We have to prove that we can deploy things at scale, that we can support them for the long run. And that was way harder to do a few years ago. I think like, it was, that was, it was really, a, what, that was probably the biggest risk of the company a few years ago. We're in a better place now, but I, I still worry about this, not for my company, but for other companies. Like I, I'm not just thinking here about Andron, I'm thinking about all the other defense companies that either do exist or should exist that the government bureaucracy is making impossible to exist. You know, to, to, to just debate this out a little bit, and then I want to uh, get your reaction to the Reagan National Defense Survey, which is going to come up at the forum uh, here in Simi Valley, California, for the Department of Defense to say, hey, I want to make sure you can scale up so your product can be used across the military. You know, million-plus yep. uh, uh, <clears throat> active-duty forces around the world to make sure it's going to work. We're not dealing with somebody's phone that may not work or can't, you know, make the app go. This, of course, is life and death. I mean, that seems to be a legitimate consideration to make the person responsible for contracting for the acquisition to be averse to that kind of risk, or at least to want to kick the tires on it to make sure we're going to be able to get that product. So I think that the right way to solve this largely is to have the competitions be based not on how good you are at writing, writing white papers, but how good you are at actually competing in real evaluations in the real world of your technology. Now, a lot of companies don't like this because they don't actually ever build their own technology. They only build things on taxpayer risk. So they'll, they can only make white papers before they get money. But I really think that the right way to, to burn down risk is not to say, oh, they're a big company that wrote a good white paper, therefore we're sure this technology will work and scale. It's to say, let's have a competition and let's see what you guys can actually make. And whoever makes the thing that really works, you know, like you said, this is life and death. It's important that this stuff actually works, not just on paper, but in the real world. And that's where we've had our biggest successes is when the procurement decisions were based on competitions where they compared our technology to the alternatives and we did way better. And then they procured our stuff even knowing that there was some risk because we were a startup and a new company. We, we have to, we, I don't have the luxury of simply meeting the bar. I have to radically surpass our competition to make up for the fact that we are a higher risk, newer company in their, in their little scoring. So build rubric. that prototype. You have it there. They could see it, smell it, touch it, let <clears> it <throat> in the prototype testing stage. And then and try to break it, you know, have them try to say, you know, how can I trick this? How can I, how can I break this? What can I do to make this not work? and you know, to, to, to prove that it's a robust system. All right, give me your best story, and then I want to go to this survey of how an Android product was brought out to the field, you're at some testing site, you deploy your prototype, and it just impresses or demonstrates a capability they didn't think you'd be able to deliver. Is there one that comes to mind that you were there, where uh, you saw, or some other colleague? You know, it, this is one of those things where it's, it's hard to get into the details because all of the most, the, the thing about working with DOD is the, the longer you work with them and the cooler your work gets, the less you're able to talk about it. Um, but I guess, I, I, I guess looking back, look, look, looking back, uh, there, was, there was an event where we were testing our counter drone system against a bunch of other companies that were testing their counter drone systems. And the cool thing about our drone counter drone system is it's not just one thing. So it, it can jam GPS, it can jam communications, it can take over drones, it can knock them out of the sky with a kinetic interceptor, uh, it can use RF triangulation to find where the operator of the drone is so that you can apprehend them at the same time you knock the drone out of the sky. It's a really cool end-to-end -end system. 
all of the other systems we were up against were basically each of those individual parts was made by a different vendor and they were being tied together by some, by some integrator. Um, I remember we showed up to one event where we were really worried that we were, we, we weren't sure how we were going to perform uh, at night. It was that we had all of our testing had mostly been during the day. There was a sudden, Hey, you guys are going to be doing a bunch of night stuff. Um, and we got, I don't want to say lucky, but uh, luckily everything that we had developed was developed the right way. And we kicked everyone else's butts and we did way better than everybody else. We knocked everything out of the sky that was thrown our way. Um, and then the, the, the really interesting thing coming off of that was all the operators on the ground, like the guys who are actually downrange that you were evaluating the system, they were blown away. They said, this is the coolest thing ever. We, you know, we, we got to get our hands on this. And I guess the, the the best or worst part of the story to me is they said, okay, like we, we need this right now. We are being attacked by drones in a place we can't talk about right now. How fast can you get this to us? We said, it's probably going to take about 18 months. They're like, holy shit, I'm not even going to be in, in you know, deployed in 18 months. We need this right now. I said, guys, 18 months is like the lower bound. That's the, if everything goes perfectly and you guys vouch for this system, it might happen. More realistically, it's going to take years. Um, and the good news is that everyone did go and vouch for our system and try to try to get it downrange. And I guess the happy ending to the story is we did actually get downrange way faster. It took about eight or nine months uh, because we had people saying, months. we need this. We need this right now or we're going to be screwed. Uh, so right. that, that's one of my favorite stories. That, that's a great story. And, and for our viewers and listeners, getting something new out, deployed out there downrange, as you said, in eight or nine months for DOD is is exceptional. I mean, that that's kind of the pace of another private sector, the tech world in, in, in aerospace and defense, generally talk years, not months. Let me get your reaction to the way the American people feel about U.S. tech leadership in national security. Our November 21 Reagan National Defense Survey, respondents talked about their view of high-tech weapon weaponry, such as artificial intelligence and, and missile technology. 39% believe that the U.S. is the best in the world while 45% think it's one of the best. What's your thinking on that? The American people have it right or wrong? It depends on what system you're looking at. If you're talking about technology generally, it's definitely, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I would say we are one of the best. We're one of the best. There are a lot of things that China in particular are way, way better at. Uh, there's also luckily a lot of our allies who are better than us at certain things. So Japan, Germany, South Korea, all these places have areas where they're better than us. Of course, the big one that everyone is talking about is Taiwan. Taiwan is way ahead of us on semiconductors. Right. And I'm kind of okay with that, except for the fact that they are, if, you, if, if Taiwan gets invaded or blockaded by China, my business is going to be in a very, very bad place, which luckily motivates seconds. me to build the tools that they need to defend themselves. Take 30 seconds to explain why that is. Obviously, you're talking about the smaller chips that you need. You can't get them in the United States. I know they're building fabs, but Explain in a little more detail why sure. business is at um, risk because of that reliance. Taiwan is incredibly smart. They have built themselves up into not one of the leaders in semiconductor technologies. They are far and away the leader. They're multiple generations ahead of everybody. The United States, uh, uh, China, they are they're just way ahead of everybody. They can manufacture semiconductors and chips at massive scales that none of us can touch. It's going to take us years, if not decades, to catch up to Taiwan and China knows, knows it's the same thing. 
Um, the, these are the chips that power everything. They power your iPhone, they power your car, they power your dishwasher, and they power all the drones that I make. They power all the sensor towers that I make. They're really important to everything. It's not just an economic thing, it's a strategic thing. Um, the thing is that China wants to go in and invade Taiwan and take them over, and they want to end one of the last bright examples of democracy working in Asia uh, because they, you know, they they feel sore about about Taiwan breaking off from them and uh, you know arguably being the real China and they just want to end they want to end that 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 kind of uh, ego threat to them. Uh, if China goes into Taiwan, the, a lot of people they look at this the wrong way, and I'll, I'll wrap this up quickly. People think that if China goes into Taiwan, that they are going to take over all of their fabs, and then China is going to be running them, and then they won't sell us chips for strategic purposes. They won't sell us chips for our military hardware. I think that's the wrong way to look at this. That's kind of an optimistic view that Wall Street looks at, because to them, just being honest, I won't name names, most executives at U.S. companies don't really care if China is running Taiwan or not, whether it's, you know, whether it's a dictatorship or democracy. If they get the chips, they're happy. Here's what's actually going to happen. If China rolls into Taiwan, a bunch of patriotic Taiwanese engineers are going to burn every fab to the ground before they let China touch any of them. And if they do that, we are going to not have any chips for years or decades until we build that capacity. That's actually what's going to happen. And uh, the, the good news is I think China understands this. This is why they're being so careful. They don't know exactly what to do about this problem. Um, but that, that, that is actually the worst case scenario. It is not China owning the semiconductors and not selling them to, to, to our DOD customers. It's that Taiwan disappears, that capability disappears, and we get destroyed economically and militarily. Right. The economic and national security impact uh, with the semiconductor kind of challenge yep. and the threat posed by a Chinese evasion, not to mention the human rights and assault on, on freedom and democracy in China, which would also be uh, fatal. Last question, and then we'll wrap up here. You'll be at the Reagan National Defense Forum. They're going to talk about China. They're going to talk about technology, government leaders, leaders from the Pentagon. What do you want to hear them say vis-a-vis -vis what the United States military, the Pentagon, needs to do to maintain our edge in technology or if we're behind, like you're just talking about in areas of artificial intelligence, what do we need to do to get the lead? What do you want to hear? There are two things we need to do. One of the important things we need to do is continue to invest in new technology rather than legacy systems. I think everyone agrees with this. It's not very controversial. The more controversial thing that you're seeing more and more people saying, and I hope that people talk about it at RNDF, is to look at the history of the biggest conflicts we've ever been in. The biggest conflicts we've won were not won with the tools that we went into the conflicts with. We developed very rapidly new capabilities during these conflicts that were tailored to the threat we saw. This was the case in World War II. This was the case in the Korean War. This was the case in Vietnam. It was the case in the War on Terror. The tools that won those wars, or at least got us to where we were, were not the ones we entered with. It was the ones we quickly uh, developed in response, and we quickly manufactured at scale. The real power of America has always been our ability to manufacture and produce at scale in response to a threat. The biggest strategic threat we have right now is not that we don't have the best technology in a lab. I, I think that's important. We want to have the best technology in a lab. But where we are really behind is that China is in a much better place to move quickly and mass manufacture in case of a conflict and to keep refilling their arsenal as a conflict goes on in a way that the United States cannot touch. We're building small numbers of exquisite systems 
and we don't have the manufacturing capability that we once had. That's one of the biggest losses in our country. The brains are, are there, the manufacturing capacity is not. And so I hope that we see people talking about that. Well, Palmer, we didn't work this out in advance, but I'm quite pleased to response, not only because I think it's insightful on the merits, but because the Reagan Institute recently issued a task force report on manufacturing competitiveness, aligning with a lot of what you said, and we'll have uh, at least one panel discussion exactly on this topic. We need to have manufacturing capacity in the United States, and we need to make sure that to the extent we're relying on manufacturing outside the United States, it's not in areas of vulnerability or, or single points of failure. Well, like when I, when I was at Oculus, we built millions of things and we shipped them. And I really wanted to build things in the US. We actually tried building a product in the US and it was not possible. It wasn't a matter of cost. It wasn't possible. We don't have the factories, the technology, the tooling, the fabs. It doesn't exist in our country at any price. And that, you know, that, that's a huge problem for the United States. And I, I, hope, I hope we can build a, build a country where we can have new startups coming into play and saying, I'm gonna build things in America, so I will. Palmer Lucky, founder of Oculus, founder of Andrewell Technologies, uh, defense innovation entrepreneur. Thank you so much for being with us on Reaganism. Thank you for the opportunity. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.